It is good to be with you. <laughs> it is very good to be with you. Well, it's good to be with you today. I hope you know that by now. Let's uh, turn our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. And just as a reminder, um, we are here to listen to God speak, not to me. Sometimes we forget that this is God's word. This is not mine. It's not my opinion, but it is God's word that we are here to consider. So that's just a, a reminder of why we're here for. Beginning in verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll read through verse 14. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that, is, that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says... Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are here to consider your words, to pay attention to them. We know that this is your word, which has been given to us by you. Father, we want to be people who tremble at your word, not at the opinions of men, but who tremble only at your word. So, Father, this morning we need your help. We need the ministry of the Holy Spirit. May he be our teacher. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, let me take you all the way back to the beginning. Let's go to the book of Genesis this morning as we begin. I want us to consider... Uh, one of the first verses in the entire Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And I want us to read verse 1 and then verse 3 and 4. I think this is a good uh, setup for our time together this morning as we consider the words of Paul in Ephesians 5. You all know this verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then go down to verse 3. And God said, right after he created the earth, what did he say? Let there be light. Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. What did God do immediately after creating the light? And God separated. God separated what? The light from the darkness. God separated the light from the darkness. Now, there is no question that the lights that we are 
speaking about in the book of Genesis is a reference to God's creation of actual physical light as we know it. But it is interesting how the Bible tells us that the separation between light and darkness didn't just happen. It was an intentional act of God. It says that God separated the light from the darkness. We normally understand this separation between light and darkness as a given, but for Moses, who wrote this account, it seems to be that God intentionally made this separation between the two. Now, what happened is that later on in redemptive history, we find that darkness quickly became a symbol of what? Divine judgment. All you have to do is to keep reading the Bible and you get to chapter, uh, you get to chapter, uh, Exodus, the second book of the Bible. And what we find is the Egyptian Pharaoh. He failed to obey God's command to let his people go. And so God sends 10, what? The 10 plagues. Plague number nine was darkness. Darkness over the land of Egypt. And this was not just any darkness. Moses tells us that it was a darkness to be felt. There was pitch darkness. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. As in Exodus chapter 10. In the story of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, what do we see? We see once again, God separating light from darkness in an act of divine judgment and deliverance. Now, I submit to you that the rest of redemptive history until this very day and until the Lord Jesus returns in glory has been and will continue to be about God separating light from darkness. And the creation account of light that we see in Genesis chapter 1 verse 4 with its separation from darkness sets the stage for God's greater work of sending his light of truth into a world that would soon be covered by darkness after Genesis chapter 3. Now, what was the darkness that fell over Egypt? Well, I believe that that thick darkness that fell on Egypt on that day was representative of a reality that is even more terrifying than the darkness itself. That darkness in Egypt was simply a reflection of the heart of man. The heart of man is dark because they do not know God. The Israelites, as the people of God, were in the light because they had the knowledge of God. And then what happened? Well, as God promises to give his people Israel a land flowing with milk and honey, what does he tell the Israelites to do? He tells them in several places, this is what you're going to do. You're going to drive all the inhabitants of the land. You're going to drive them all away. You're going to drive them, all the people away. You must claim the land to yourselves. Don't let them stay. And so the conquest of the land begins led by Joshua. What is this? Once again, God separating the light from darkness. This is the story of redemption. 
God giving light to his people while the rest remains in darkness and he separates the two. Now the story continues. It hasn't stopped. We are a part of the story. But there is something interesting that I want to show you. Turning your Bibles to Revelation verse chapter 22. There is something very interesting that I want to show you here. Revelation, as you know, is the last book of the Bible. And chapter 22 is the last chapter in the entire Bible. It is interesting how the Bible begins in the very first chapter. God separating light and darkness. What do we find in the very last chapter in the entire Bible? Consider chapter 22, verse 5. It says that someday when the new age is ushered in, night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Interesting. The world began with the separation of light from darkness. The world will end with the final separation of light from darkness. And in the meantime, God is separating light from darkness. He continues to call people to himself out of the darkness as the word of God is preached and as the spirit of God brings people to himself. This morning, Paul will will remind us of what it means to all of us as God's adopted children to be in the light. He will apply this to us as the people of God. Now, with all that in the background, let me give you the layout of these verses as we will approach them this morning in Ephesians chapter 5. So go back to Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to give you the layout so that you understand what we'll do, what we'll do this morning. First, we have the main truth. The main truth. That is the first thing we'll, we'll see in the first section of verse 8. Of verse 8 is the main truth. Then Paul will give us the main exhortation. The main exhortation. And this will be in the second half of verse 8. Then in verse 9, Paul will give us a supporting explanation for his exhortation. A supporting explanation. And then finally... Paul will give us the practical applications of the exhortation. And so that is the layout. That is the structure of today's sermon so that it is clear in your minds. Let's consider the first one, the main truth. What is the main truth? Well, we get this from the first half of verse 8. We are light, no longer darkness. This is the dominating thought of truth that controls everything else. This is the key to understanding Paul's main argument in this particular section. And once again, he speaks in the indicative form. He is reminding us of the most important fact about our lives. We are light, no longer darkness. This is what Paul says in verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Let me point out a few important details. First, Paul is very good at reminding us who we used to be. Isn't that something that he does often? 
The Holy Spirit of God led Paul to write these things, and they are therefore of utmost importance. Paul believes that it is important for us to remember our lost condition in which we once were. This is, if you realize, the third time in his letter in which Paul does this. The first time he reminded us of the past was in chapter 2, verse 1, when he said, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's reminding us of the past. And then he did it again in chapter 2, verse 11. He said, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. For some reason, Paul sees the value in us remembering who we were without Christ. Why? I believe the answer is rather simple, but it is powerful. As we remember our former darkness, we learn to appreciate our present light. Now, the second thing that I want you to notice is Paul's definitive language. He doesn't say, you walked in darkness and you are walking in the light. He doesn't say that. His language is much stronger than that. He says, you were darkness, but now you are light. Christianity, my friends, is not about choosing to be light. It is about knowing that you are light. Now, the most critical question we must seek to answer at this point is as follows. What does it mean to be light? What does it mean to be light? I submit to you that this question goes to the very heart of Christianity. And in fact, we cannot answer this question without giving profound thought and consideration to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you don't look to Christ, you will, know, you will not know the meaning of being light. First, we must consider who Jesus is in and of himself. And second, we must consider who we are in relation to him. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus in and of himself? The apostle John spoke of the Lord Jesus and his incarnation in this manner. He said in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the light. What does that mean? How is Jesus the light of the world? Well, I think the best answer comes from the Apostle Paul, an answer that he gave in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, verse 6. And I want you to notice how Paul brings us back to creation language as he answers the question of why or how is Jesus the light? Listen carefully. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just as God created the light and separated it from the darkness, so God too created light in our hearts, the Bible says, by dispersing the darkness that was within us. What is this light? Paul says it directly. The knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the light. 
This is how Jesus is the light. He reveals the glory of God to us. He gives us the knowledge that we may know God, and it is all found in himself. Jesus reveals the Father to us. This is what it means to be in the light. If being darkness means to be alienated from the life of God, according to Ephesians 4.18, then being light means to know God through Jesus Christ. But it goes even deeper than that, if you can believe this. Notice again in chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says, You are light in the Lord. You are light in the Lord. We cannot read over those three important words. You are light in the Lord. What is this? This is a reference to our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are light insofar as we are united with the Lord. We know God truly because we have been united with Christ eternally. And this is how God disperses the darkness from our hearts. He shines his light in the hearts of individuals as the gospel of Jesus is preached and believed on and brings them into perfect union with Christ. This is who we are. We are in union with the Lord. We are light in the Lord. We know the true God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, and we have been brought into union with him forever. Uh, you may be thinking to yourself, well, you're not telling us anything new. And that's one of the beauties of preaching. I'm not here to reinvent anything. These are all old truths, ancient truths, but we tend to forget as I have said before, this, my brothers and sisters, is the most important truth about you. This is the most important truth about you. Neither your ethnicity, nor your place of birth, nor your last name, nor your occupation, nor anything else in the world can even come close to this. You are light in the Lord. Your identity is in Christ, period. Now, as you know, there are dangerous movements in our society today that are trying very hard, are seeking to make much of people's identity based on lesser things, even within circles that would claim faith in Christ. Some today want their identity to be attached primarily to the color of their skin. Do you know what that is? That is darkness. Others are looking to be identified on the basis of their sexuality or sexual preference. This is also darkness. And I will say more about this toward the end. You will be shocked to learn about what some churches are doing to encourage their people in their sin by accepting their desired sexual identity. But I'll save that for later. My point is this. This is what I'm telling you. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are light in the Lord. This is where your story, your story begins, and this is where your story ends. You know God. You know God in Jesus Christ. That is the most important truth about your life. Now, this obviously leads me to Paul's main exhortation. 
which is simply the outworking of the main truth. What is Paul's main exhortation? Well, we must walk as children of light. Consider verse 8 once again. After telling us of our identity, he says this, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. This is Paul's main exhortation. And a perfectly good summary of what it means to be a Christian. What is a Christian? A Christian is a person who lives out their new identity in the Lord. Christians are light. They for, therefore, they conduct themselves as people of light. Their lives reflect their identity. It is not their behavior that determines who they are. It is who they are that determines their behavior. And the analogy of light is a perfect illustration of this. As you know, light shines. Light has an effect. So Paul is telling us that if we belong to the light, if we claim Christ as our Lord and Savior and he is in us, then the light will shine forth in and through our conduct in life. That is his point. But in case, just in case we are missing the point, he adds verse 9. Verse 9 is the supporting explanation for the exhortation. And he's going to strengthen his argument. What is the supporting explanation? Here it is, very simple. Light produces goodness, righteousness, and truth. Light produces goodness, righteousness, and truth. Verse 9 says, the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. On this particular verse, I, I like the NASB a little better. It says, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. The fruit consists in these things, meaning the light within us produces these things. This is Paul's way of strengthening his exhortation to us before he even gets to the practical applications of what this means. He adds this explanatory verse in there, verse nine. He adds this massive pillar to the truth he is conveying to us. Now, it is imperative, my brothers and sisters, that we don't miss what he's saying. I would say that herein lies the very heart of Christianity. And this is what sets Christianity apart from all religions in the world. We are people of grace. No one would disagree with that. I hope we are saved by grace, not by works. God saves us because he is good, not because we are good. God saves sinners out of the goodness and the mercy of his own kindness. And he calls undeserving sinners to himself. We affirm this. This is the heart of our faith. Jesus Christ died for unworthy people. However, when God shines his light of truth within us, a change takes place and something new is started and this change brings forth fruit this is the consistent message of the new testament let me show you just a few places and i want you to pay attention to that one word fruit fruit that's the key word for instance in galatians 
chapter 5, verse 22, we read that the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, etc., etc. The fruit of the Spirit. And then to the Philippians, Paul said that his prayer for them is that they may be filled with the fruit of righteousness. The fruit of righteousness. Now, what makes a fruit a fruit? That's a deep question, isn't it? What makes a fruit a fruit? Well, without getting into any, anything too specific, we could say that a fruit is a fruit because it is always the product of something, never the cause of something. A fruit is a fruit because it is produced out of something, not because it produces something. When we hear the word fruit, we immediately understand that something produced it and that it did not produce itself. Why is this important? It is important because this is the very heart of Paul's argument for sanctification. If you miss Paul's argument, you're going to miss, miss the entire call to holiness. Paul says that everything good in your life, everything righteous in your life, and everything true in your life is the fruit. Is the fruit of what? Of light. This is why we are not Roman Catholic. Therefore, Paul's argument is not that we become Christians by being good, by being righteous, and by being truthful. Rather, the Bible affirms that goodness, righteousness, and truth in our lives are the direct consequence of our salvation through our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Goodness, righteousness, and truth are the work of the Spirit within us. This is the fruit of life. Therefore, being children of light will lead us to live as such because light produces goodness. Light produces righteousness and light produces truth in us. Now, this takes us all the way back once again to chapter 4, verse 24 of the book of Ephesians. We must put on the new self created after the likeness of God. This is not our work. It is the work of God. He has created us. After his own likeness, if you think about it, goodness, righteousness, and truth, truth are all what we would call attributes of God. He is perfect goodness. He is perfect righteousness. He is perfect truth. And by creating us after his likeness, God is producing in us the same characteristics. Do you see now the importance of sanctification in the Christian life? It is proof. It is evidence that the light is actually within us. And I must emphasize this point. I don't want anyone to be confused. Our new nature in Christ will bring forth new qualities of life. Is never the other way around. You cannot have a new nature and not produce new fruit. The fruit does not determine the nature of the tree. It is the nature of the tree that determines the type of fruit. Do you see how strong is Paul's argument for sanctification. It is actually irrefutable. Let's put it a different way. What Paul is saying is this. Holiness in the Christian life is a non-negotiable because it is a necessary byproduct of the light we now possess. It is a non-negotiable. 
You are light, therefore goodness, righteousness, and truth will begin to manifest themselves in you. Now we must live accordingly, says Paul. Well then, what does this look like in practice? What does this look like in practice? The, the good news is that Paul did not leave this up to our imagination. That would be very dangerous. He gave us very specific practical applications that we must obey. So let me remind you of the progression one more time. The progression is this. The main truth of our identity leads to the main exhortation, which is supported by Paul's irrefutable explanation in verse 9. Now we are ready to look at the practical applications. This is what it looks like to walk as children of light. Are you ready? Very simple. Letter A, abstain from all forms of evil. This takes us back to verse 7. What does it say in verse 7? Therefore, do not become partners with them. With who? With who? With the people mentioned in verses 3 through 6, the sexually immoral, the unrepentant sexually immoral, the unrepentant impure, the unrepentant covetous, and those who use their mouths for evil. The expression become partners is an interesting one. It is one of the most prominent motifs in scripture. Both the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs make much of this particular call to not partner with unbelievers. In fact, they have a very prominent place in the book of Psalm and in the book of Proverbs. Take, for instance, the very first Psalm, the very first verse in that Psalm, Psalm 1, which according to Charles Spurgeon is a Psalm that possesses the very essence of the entire book of Psalms. Listen to what it says in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in what? In the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Do you hear echoes echoes of Psalm 1 in Paul's exhortation of Ephesians 5, 7? How about Proverbs 1? Listen to verses 10 and 15 of Proverbs 1. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. And then verse 15. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Do not walk in the way with them. Do you hear echoes once again of Proverbs 1? In his exhortation in Ephesians 5, 7, yes, we hear those echoes because this message has not changed. It has been the same since the beginning. God telling his people to be set apart. Brothers and sisters, this call to not partner with sinners in their evil ways involves everything about your life. Everything about your life. Everything about your life. Yes, It even involves the way you vote. It involves everything. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not going to get political. But I need to be honest with you. If you call yourself a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you simply cannot vote 
for political leaders who will support and promote the destruction of the family and society through homosexual marriage, transgenderism, sexual promiscuity, and any kind of depravity. Neither are you free as a man, a woman of the light to vote for political leaders who will endorse the destruction of life through abortion. It is murder. It is evil. We cannot become partners with them. If you do, you are sinning against God. What is the Bible telling you? You are no longer darkness. You are light in the Lord. Now, letter B. Discern what pleases the Lord, verse 10. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Very straightforward. Consider here with me the importance of that little expression, try to discern. Try to discern. What do you think that means? I think it means at a basic level that is not always very easy to do. First of all, notice with me the intentionality involved in this. You must be engaged in discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. The word discern is similar to the word testing or approving. In fact, they can almost be used interchangeably. Discerning involves putting things to the test or carefully analyzing something in order to approve it. It doesn't just happen. That's what it means. It doesn't just happen. If, if you are not trying, likely you are not discerning. Listen to Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. This is Paul. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now, second, you must be careful in this process. This, these are just basic implications. You must be careful in this process. Not everything that you do is pleasing to the Lord. We need to understand that much. Not everything that we do should be approved. And third, notice that the standard by which we measure everything is not you, is the Lord. It is not your preference. It is the Lord's will. And fourth, this is an ongoing process. It requires praying, reading the scripture, listening, persevering, disciplining oneself. Now consider with me letter C. Expose the deeds of darkness. Expose the deeds of darkness. Verses 11 and 12. Paul is, is, is almost as though he's repeating himself once again. He wants to emphasize this. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. When Paul says, take no part, he means to say, have no fellowship. Now, I told you earlier that I was going to say more about the issue of sexual identity, which is so popular today. And I thought this would be a good point to bring it up. A Presbyterian church in St. Louis put together a conference. You may have, may have heard of this conference. It was called Revoice. 
which has sparked a tremendous amount of controversy among other churches belonging to the same denomination, namely the Presbyterian Church in America, or the PCA. Why so much controversy around this Revoice Conference? Here's why. Let me state the very mission of the conference. This is out of their website, and I quote, their mission is this, and I quote, supporting, encouraging, and empowering gay, lesbian, same-sex attracted, and other LGBT Christians so they can flourish while observing the historic Christian doctrine of marriage and sexuality, end quote. That is their mission. And here's one of the benefits that the organizers of the conference promised all those who attend. Here it is. Gathered together with other gender and sexual minorities and those who love them and experience a new kind of gospel community, end quote. Now, there are, of course, many things terribly wrong with these words, but I just want to point out one. The organizers of this conference are doing an unbelievable amount of damage to those they are supposedly trying to help. Why? There's no such thing as a gay, lesbian, LGBT Christian. We need to be clear about this. You know that there are people in the world in other places of the world that, even in the U.S., many places that would uh, want to strangle me for saying this. The amount of hatred toward the truth is unbelievable. But I need to emphasize this. There is no such thing as a gay, lesbian, LGBT Christian. You simply cannot attach darkness to those who are in the light. But this is exactly what these people are doing. They are saying it is okay to try to embrace the light while holding on to the darkness. Remember the, the, the couple that I told you about last week? Some of you will remember. That's what they were trying to do at first. But this, my brothers and sisters, cannot be done. For light will, by necessity, disperse the darkness. These people who are sending this message will be held accountable by God himself for bringing such confusion, destructive, evil confusion. Paul says, unmistakably, have no part. Have no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Period. Come out of the darkness. Don't live under the self-induced illusion that you can somehow remain in the darkness and not face the wrath of God. Remember verse 6? What does verse 6 say? Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. These are empty words that will definitely 
lead people to eternal destruction. Anyone who believes in them, do not be deceived. Make no mistake about it. Now, this leads me to Paul's final word of application. In fact, I want to connect these two points. Letter D, you must live in light of the resurrection of Jesus. Consider verses 13 and 14. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And to be honest with you, I, I struggled through understanding these verses. In, in verse 11, Paul tells us that we need to expose the deeds of darkness. How do we do that? Well, calling them evil is the place to start. It's a good place to start. But secondly, I want to expose the evil deeds of darkness by shining the light of Christ Jesus on them. So please listen to me, wherever you are. Let me tell you what the Lord Jesus did for sinners. Let me read to you three parallel accounts of what happened as Jesus died on the cross. Matthew 27, verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Mark 15, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Hour. Luke chapter 23, verse 44. It was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. My brothers and sisters, and my friends, anywhere where you are, Jesus took our darkness upon himself. This was judgment. This is why darkness fell upon the land. Jesus was taking our punishment. This was judgment. Jesus took the judgment of your homosexuality, of your immorality, of your lusts. And he placed that judgment upon under himself, upon himself, and he placed himself under the judgment so that you would no longer be blinded by it. But there is more. Here's the Lord's call upon you this day. Awake, says the Bible. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, this is a quote. Now, the origins of this quote are highly debated. But here is the bottom line. Jesus rose from the dead so that you would no longer live in darkness. That is the whole point. So if you claim Jesus as your Lord, then you must live in light of the empty tomb. Jesus came to destroy your darkness. Darkness. 
not so that you would be comfortable living in it. But he came to destroy your darkness so that you would come out of it and walk in the light. So if this morning you are entangled in any besetting ongoing sin, this is Christ's call upon you. Come out of the darkness. Come out of the darkness. Do not embrace your darkness. Jesus died under the darkness so that you wouldn't be blinded by it. And then he rose again to free you from the power of it. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that at the end of the day, the power of your word does not depend on the eloquence of the preacher. I praise you for that. I thank you for the fact that you can use a very imperfect sermon to bring about your perfect work. Lord, we do not know exactly the state of the lives of those who have listened to these words today. And I know I'm aware that uh, my presentation has been lacking in many ways, yet your word is always perfect, and you will accomplish the purpose for which you sent your word. And so, Father, we trust you. The results are in your hands. And I pray, Lord, that if there was anybody listening to this, either here, live, or from somewhere else, who is entangled in any kind of darkness, that, Father, that you will call them to the light. They will embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, repent of their sins, turn away, and come embrace Christ, his death, and his resurrection. Thank you for your ongoing work within our lives. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we have. We are unworthy sinners, and yet Christ gave his life for us. There's so much more that we could say, Lord, and we are grateful. Our hearts are full. Help us now to respond with joy, knowing who we are in Christ. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.